If you have your Bibles, maybe you'd turn with me to the letter to the Romans, chapter 8. And um, I want us to look tonight at verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to the end. Now, I ought just to say for those who are maybe visiting tonight, and maybe you've not been here earlier, I ought to say whilst we're doing, I was speaking last night on the state of Britain, and uh, we were thinking about Elijah and the way in which he called down fire upon the offering to authenticate his ministry. But uh, before he called down fire, he built up the altar. And I was saying that uh, what that really means is that he wasn't expecting the fire of God to fall until they went back to uh, the teaching of Israel, the teaching concerning sacrifice and atonement, nature of sin and the coming saviour, all of which was symbolised by the altar. And uh, Elijah built up the altar. And I took that to mean that we ourselves must build up the the message of salvation, we must lay foundations. God will not pour out the Spirit. God will not come down in fire until there's something upon which to come down. And uh, with that thought, we've been looking at the, the message of salvation. And uh, I've been trying to survey the Bible's teaching about salvation. I said that one ought to begin with the simplicities. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible about salvation, but not a good idea to plunge into all of the details. Indeed, theologians have often uh, made things more complicated than, than they need to have done by plunging into such a mass of details. No, when you just read the New Testament, certain big things stand out. Salvation is Jesus. God gives you a person. He doesn't give you a, a system or a book or a, or a religion or a routine or a ritual or even an experience. He gives you a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came as a fact of sheer history, came into the world and died upon the cross, rose from the dead, and in Christ every single blessing is to be found. In him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in him, says the Bible. But so, so salvation is being given Jesus. Salvation is by grace. It's totally and radically and utterly free, more free than most of us can even conceive. It's incredible how totally free the gospel is. And salvation is by faith. We simply put out the, the empty hands, not doing something or deserving something. It's not a, a thing or some virtue of ours. It's simply putting out an empty hand and receiving what God has. And then, having looked at the, uh, the big things, there's a lot of details, how God draws us, how God calls us, we are called into fellowship with his son, says the Bible, how we are quickened, we are made alive, we are wakened up to uh, hear the things of God, and then we, we're brought to repentance, we're brought to faith, having been justified, we have peace with God, we are born again, there are many details, and we've been looking at some of them. But uh, I'm still pursuing some of these things, and we were looking at assurance of salvation. There are three main ways in Scripture of coming to assurance of salvation. One is simply by trusting the promises of God. There's an old hymn that says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, and that he died for me. The mere fact that you're trusting in Jesus in itself is assuring. You ought to find your assurance by just seeing that Jesus has died for you and you have put your trust in him. But there's another way, and that is the outpouring of the Spirit. His Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are 
children of God. And there's a third way. There's a way of confirming. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. We see certain things in ourselves. And although we're not trying to justify ourselves by our good works, yet good works sort of confirm that we have indeed found God, that we do know the Lord. We say we know that we have passed from death to life because we do love the brothers and sisters. We do know that God is leading us in the direction of obedience. We do know he has brought us to faith. Certain things uh, are true in of us, which, which we know, if it hadn't been for God, I, I wouldn't be there. And this, as it were, confirms where we are and makes us doubly and trebly sure that we are saved. But I haven't finished. I've still got a few more things to cover. And uh, one of them is this salvation is secure. And... Uh, I hold the view, I, I don't want to be controversial, though it is controversial, there's nothing I can do to make it not controversial, but uh, I, I hold the view that salvation is totally and utterly secure. When God gives you salvation, he gives it to you. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. It's yours, it's your possession, you own it. Uh, it's yours forever. You will never take it back. And we looked at some of the passages. I said there were really three or four ways of of uh, coming at it and proving that point. There are the direct statements of Scripture. Jeremiah 32, 40. The, the, the covenant is everlasting. It can't be broken. God will not turn from us. We shall not turn from him. A very direct statement of Scripture. It, it, John's Gospel. I, who, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me. I will raise them up at the last day. And no one shall take them from my hand. No one shall take them from my father's hand. Not one of them has been lost. There is Judas, but not one of, of them, the people, my, my people, has been lost. You've given me these people, says Jesus. And there are all these uh, statements. And then uh, it's implied by other teachings. It's implied by the intercession of Jesus. Jesus is praying, I will that they get to be with me where I am in glory. If we do not get to glory, Jesus gets his prayers turned down. The Father says, no to the prayer of Jesus. That's impossible. Jesus gets his prayer answered. If Jesus is praying that I will get to glory, then I will get to glory. There's no way in which the prayer of Jesus can be turned down or God can say no. It's, it's implied by the intercession of Jesus and many other things. It's implied by the nature of the covenant. A covenant is something which cannot be broken. It's implied by the fact that the salvation is without works. How can you lose nothing? If, if salvation is by, by freely being given something, and we, the Bible even says that salvation comes by doing nothing. To him who does nothing but believes in God, who justifies the ungodly. How can you lose doing nothing? How can something be lost if it's totally and absolutely free? There's no conditions, there's nothing to be done to, to keep it. How can it be lost then? Any person who thinks you can lose your salvation, I'm not wanting to be rude to anybody, but... Uh, if you'll forgive me saying so, anybody who thinks you can lose your salvation has not understood justification. How can something which is totally and radically and utterly free be lost? By definition, if there's no condition to be made, there's no condition to be made, full stop. It's implied by the doctrine of justification. And the whole, every scripture, every angle you come at it, it all implies the same thing. God will keep his people. Well, we're still pursuing that, and uh, there are just a number of reasons why people have difficulties. Uh, sometimes people have difficulties because of the warnings of Scripture, and I will try to say something about it. They say, well, it's all right, there are these Scriptures on this side, but there are other Scriptures on the other side. I'm sure you've heard people say things like that. To which the answer is, go and look at those warnings. They're never warnings that you might be condemned after all. 
They're never warnings that, that God will remove the new birth. Those warnings don't exist. They're never warnings that you will cease to be God's son. Those warnings do not exist. They're warnings about reward. If any person's works are burned up, he shall suffer loss. They're works about not inheriting the kingdom, which is not exactly the same as being saved. Inheriting the kingdom is experiencing the powers of God's kingdom at work in your life, and they can be blocked by sin. They're not warnings about losing salvation. They're warnings about blocking the flow of God's kingdom in your life. There are warnings about communities. As the, as the generation goes on, one generation arises which doesn't believe what his fathers believed. Well, all right, God removes the lampstand. That church ceases to function. But uh, it's not anybody losing salvation. There are many warnings in Scripture, but none of them are warnings about lost justification or lost sonship or lost new birth. And actually, it's the other way around. The, the conspicuous absence of those warnings is the very thing that shows you don't need to be warned about losing justification. You would expect the warning to be there if it were possible, but it's not there. So what does that mean? And so on. Well, I've got one more. I've not finished yet. Romans chapter 8. Paul is still, he's been arguing all this out for four or five chapters. Back in chapter 5, he said, well, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And, notice, notice this, we have peace with God, and we have, we have an access into a, a kingdom of grace in which we stand. We don't slip and slide and fall out there. We stand there, we stay there. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Notice that he passes over our entire life. He says we are justified by faith, and he leaps over our entire life, and we're expecting to get to heaven. You might say, what about everything in between? I mean, shouldn't he say we rejoice in, in hope of the, we, we, we're justified by faith, as long as we keep going, as long as we're sanctified, as long as we're good, really nice, obedient people, we might finally get to glory. No, he, he didn't bother about that. He skips over that. So, we're, so we're, we're as good as in heaven already. In Romans 8, he says, those whom he has, he justified, he, he has glorified. He doesn't even say he will. He says he has. You're as good as in heaven already. He has glorified you. You, you. you say, I want to get to heaven. You're already in heaven. You're seated in the heavenly places. You're there already. You may say, well, I hope I'll get through judgment day. I answer, you've already been through judgment day. Justification is a kind of judgment day. God says, I pronounce you not guilty. It's in the past. You've already gone through it. There's a judgment day about reward. I know about that. But uh, this, this determining whether you're saved or not, you've already gone through that. There is no condemnation. You could translate there is no judgment to those who are in Christ. We are utterly and totally secure. Well, Paul's been working it all out. We have peace with God. We're as good as in heaven. We've died to sin. How can sin drag us down if we've already died to it? We've died to the law. How can the law condemn us if the laws we've already died to it? We're beyond that altogether. Everything he says implies this security. And so when he gets to chapter 8, he says, therefore, there is therefore. Notice the word therefore. Somebody has said, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask what it's there for. It's always got a reason. It's always arguing something. It's therefore, after telling you that you're good as in heaven already, sin can't condemn you, law can't condemn you, there's therefore no condemnation. And he means no condemnation ever. And he goes on working it all out. We were looking at some of it in our last session. And then, then we come to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And by that time, Paul is sort of finished. He's really finished all of his arguments. And I was saying this morning, or was it this afternoon, I was saying when you're a preacher and you finish, you haven't really finished until you've finished. What I mean by that is when you've said everything, you don't stop. You know, you know preachers are like that anyway. But uh, even when you finish what you want to say, you don't say, now, that's the end of that, let's go home now, we carry on next week. 
you start pressing it on the people. You're not a good preacher unless, unless your sermons end with exhortation. Remember the day of Pentecost with many other exhortations. He says, flee from what's it, this crooked generation. Sermon, remember the Sermon on the Mount. When he's finished, upon this hangs all the law and the prophets. Full stop. It's over. Oh, not quite. Unless you build your house on this rock, one day there's going to be a judgment. He always ends with a, a bit of an exhortation and pressure. It's the same with, with Paul. He's finished all his arguments. But he's not quite finished. Yeah, it's as though he, he looks around to the congregation, so to speak. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? You see, he's, he's, he's going to press his message upon, upon the people. He says, well, now, now, what do you think about this? I've used every conceivable argument, he says, to try and persuade you that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And the greatest one of all is the doctrine of predestination. This is part of a, a great big plan. God had his mind on you from the foundation of the world. And he called you and saved you and justified you. And those who he justified, he's glorified. It's all done and accomplished in the mind of God. That's the greatest argument of all. And he says, now, now how do you feel about this? What do you think about this? What then shall we say to these things? You see, he's a preacher. and He, he doesn't want the people to let people go away without uh, making them think and confront what he says. What should, what should we say to these? What do you feel about this? What, what should we say to these things? Says the Apostle Paul. And he knows that people have still got objections. It's amazing how people will argue for their condemnation. Amazing thing. You, you try and persuade them that they're safe and they keep on arguing back. They're not safe, they're going to fall away at any moment. They, they keep on arguing back against their own, their own blessing. Amazing how people do that. He knows exactly what people are like. How, how a sense of sort of uh, unworthiness grips us. And no matter how much we, we tell people that God loves them and there's grace, he'll keep you forever, you always find some argument to, to sort of defend, defend your own insecurities. And Paul knows all about it. And so he's, he's, he's still not, he just still doesn't stop. And he knows they've got various objections. So what he does is he takes up these remaining objections, these things that they might still be saying, despite everything he's been arguing, they're still going to have certain problems, and he knows all about it. And so he answers them one at a time. There are really four of them. He says, first of all, well, it's all very well to... He, he faces this argument. There's this person who says, well, it's all very well to say all these wonderful things, but you know life is tough and life is, is uh, difficult and uh, in all the pressures of life, I, I still feel that somehow, uh, you know, I, I might, something might be against me and I'll, st- I'll stumble somehow and maybe, maybe God's willing to keep me, but I'm not, not sure whether I'm going to keep myself and uh, maybe I'll, I'll, still, I'll still fall somehow and somehow something's going to defeat me somewhere. Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? This, this thing that you're, you're sort of scared about, what is it? Put a name to it. Is it bigger than God? If God is for us, and he spent a chapter after chapter showing that God is for us, he's here to save us, rescue us, forgive us, put us into his kingdom, nothing will separate us from, from God's love. Now he says, well, if God is for us, you ought to be convinced by now that God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? What is this thing which, is, which you reckon somehow is going to rob you of your salvation? Is it bigger than God? Is, it, is, it, is there going to be something that, could, that can defeat God? Put, put a name to it. Who can? Who, who is this thing? What is this thing? Put a name to it. What is it that somehow is going to defeat God? And the answer is, there's no such thing. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Can we be against ourselves? Well, you think, you think we can defeat God? If he's determined to get us to glory, we somehow defeat him. No, no, God is, is the Lord at this point. And if God is for us and is 
determined to get us to glory. And his son is there at the right hand requesting the Father that we shall get to glory, that we shall get to glory. Who can be against us? Who can pull us down and defeat us if God is working to get us to the heavenly glory as he is? And then uh, there's another question that, that he's got on his mind. Well, what if somehow we need to be fall or we, we, we do something wrong and we need some bit of help or some bit of grace and somehow we, we don't get it and we fall by the wayside and, uh, and so we, we blow it, we ruin our, our security and our greater blessing. Maybe there's something we, we need and we lack, we're deficient in some way and we, just, so we don't get to the heavenly kingdom because of this weakness or deficiency in us. Well, listen to, to Paul. He who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, he's arguing, he's reasoning. Aristotle would have called it an argument from the greater to the lesser. The big thing implies the little thing. That's one of Aristotle's categories. If God has done the big thing, he who spared not his own son, I mean, that was the biggest thing God ever could do. He, he, was, he was willing to spare not his own son. Not only did he not hold him back, not only did he send him, he sent him to the cross. Uh, and when the, the punishment of sin was falling upon Jesus, God didn't, as he would, step in and protect his son. He, he wanted us so much, and there's only one way for us to be saved, and that was for the father to abandon his son. And so he did it. He gave the, the biggest thing he possibly ever could give to get our salvation. He who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all. Now here's the question. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Anything that we might need now is small compared to his son. If God has done the little thing, won't he do done the big thing? Won't he do the little thing? All right, all right. I'd like to put it like this. Imagine you go out and you buy the, the biggest, most uh, fantabulous car you ever did buy. You buy some Cadillac, some Mercedes, and you spend all of your wealth buying some massive big car of luxury. Anybody who goes out and buy, buys a Mercedes, won't he also buy a gallon of petrol? You know, won't, he, won't he sort of do the little things to actually drive it? If he's done the big thing, won't he, do something? Won't he just pay the insurance and, and get some petrol? The little things that actually want the actual thing to work? If he's done the big thing, won't he do all the little things to make it actually happen? That's the argument. An argument from the big thing to the little thing. If he's done the big thing, surely he'll do the little thing. It's the same kind of argument. Aristotle would have called it an argument from the greater to the lesser. He who spared not his own son... He's done the biggest thing he ever could do. So any other thing you're ever going to need is going to be small compared to what God has already done. And there's no ways in which God can say, well, I've given you my son, and that bit, no, no, I can't give you that. There's no way God can do that. Anything else is small compared to what he's already done for you. And how much did you need to contribute for God to send his son? Listen, how shall he not with him also freely... When God gave you his son, he didn't charge you anything. You didn't deserve it. It was totally by grace. He gave, he gave you his son without any contribution on your part. It was totally and utterly free. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Anything else he's going to give you, that's going to be free as well. Any conceivable thing that might be necessary to get you to the heavenly glory, it's small compared to what God has already done for you. That's the argument. He's, he's answering you. You want to argue with Paul? He's going to argue back. He's going to give you the reasons and, 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 and demolish your, pro, your protests. 
He's already done this. He did it back in chapter 5. He said, if while we were enemies... Notice the same sort of thing again. If while we were enemies, said Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? You can see the same kind of argument again. If, if when we hated God and we were enemies and God was angry with us, but everything was wrong between us and God, God reconciled us by the death of his son. Don't you think now that we are reconciled, he'll do anything else to, to save us by, his, by the life of Jesus? Will he, will he not finish the whole program off? Will he start something and not finish it? Here's the argument, that, that the cross is the biggest thing that God could ever do. And anything necessary to get us to glory will be done, will be given to us, and will be given to us freely. You may say, what if I sin? Well, God can deal with that. Don't you think God can deal with that? He can, can, he can chastise us, he can rebuke us, he can, he can put us in any situation. You think he can't bring us to repentance? He's perfectly capable of bringing us to repentance. He can do any, anything that needs to be done, he can do it. And he will do it. He will, he will keep us in his kingdom, he will keep us believing. We never, we'll never lose our faith. Jesus said to Peter, Satan desired to have you and I have prayed for you. And even when Peter's cursing and swearing, he's still got faith. Jesus said, oh, I'm praying for you that you won't stop believing. I'm praying that your faith will not fail. God will do anything that needs to be done to keep us secure and safe in his kingdom. If you come to Jesus Christ, anybody here tonight who's not saved? Well, i tell you something. If you come to Jesus Christ, he will keep you. You may say, well, I'd like to become a Christian. I'm not sure I could keep it up. My friend, you don't have to keep it up. He keeps you up. You have a spring of life welling up. Nobody can keep it down. You have a spring of life welling up, springing up into everlasting life. Nobody, nobody can keep it down. They're keeping it up is keeping you up. Now, now God, God puts his son into your life and he puts a well of, of salvation spring up, living water. You'll never thirst again. You may, you may feel thirsty, but the well is there. You never need to feel, feel thirsty again. It's there for you. It'll keep you. He who, even if we, when we were enemies, he reconciled us. Now that we are friends, don't you think he, he, even, even more, he'll keep us. And so he's arguing, he's answering all of these protests and criticisms that they have. But then there's something else. Well, you, you say, yeah, okay, that's all right, but uh, what about sin? What if I sin? Maybe God will keep me, but what if I do something terrible and I fall into some terrible sin and really now, uh, when I get to the final judgment day, this, this sin comes back that I've committed and it could finally condemns me. But, well, could, could, is it not possible that I might commit some terrible sin and I get condemned because of what I do? I'm, I'm weak, I'm feeble, I'm just an ordinary human being, not a super saint, not an angel. What, what if I do something terrible and, uh, and I fall into sin? Maybe that might condemn me. And finally, finally, at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm condemned. Well, Paul answers that as well. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This condemnation, who, who's going to bring the charge? Who's going to bring the accusation? Is God going to bring it? No, you are God's elect. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world. Without any reference to anything you've ever done, he's chosen to have you. And remember... Romans 8 that we looked at and Romans 9 that's in the next chapter where God comes to Jacob and Esau and says I'm not looking at you I'm totally ignoring you without any reference to anything you've done either good or bad Romans chapter 9 
without any reference whatsoever, not because of works, though they were not yet born, though they'd done nothing, either good or bad, before you're born, before you've done the thing, before you've believed, but when you've done nothing, you've made no contribution to life whatsoever, she was told, the elder will serve the younger, because Jacob have I loved. And Esau, I've left him aside. I've put my life in Jacob. I'm going to have Jacob. I'm determined to have him. Jacob, you know about Jacob? He was the biggest crook there ever was. They called him Yaakov, Jacob. It means grabber, grasper. He was born grabbing his, his brother's heel. He was a grabber by name and a grabber by nature. He was born that way. And he grows up a crook and a swindler. He's always deceiving people. He, remember how he deceives Esau out of, his, out of the birthright and, and deceives his father? If ever there was a con man, it was Jacob. And had, if you had known Jacob and Esau, you'd have liked Esau more than Jacob. You wouldn't have chosen Jacob. You'd have chosen Esau. But God said, I'm totally disregarding anything in this man's life. Before he's done a thing, good or bad, just telling you, I'm going to have Jacob. And one day, Jacob is running for his life. He's, he's offended his brother. His brother's saying, I'm going to kill him. And he's running for his life. His brother's threatening to kill him. And one day, as he's running for his life, God steps into his life. He's done nothing, good or bad, uh, that, that brings salvation. Anything he has done has been bad anyway. Suddenly, God steps in his life. He says, no, no, I want you. When God takes hold of you, he disregards anything in you. You may say, well, you know, I don't feel worthy. Well, God's not looking at you anyway. Or maybe you'll say, well, I am worthy. You know, I'm a really good person. I go to church and all the things. God's not looking at that either. Anything good does not impress him. Anything bad does not put him off. He's not looking at you at all. He's just saying, regardless of anything in you, what you've done after you were born, I chose you before you were born. I wasn't even looking at anything you ever did. I, I, I had you in your mind before you were even born. And I've determined to have you that my purpose according to election, according to choosing, choosing you, might stand. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, the one that God has chosen, totally regardless of anything he might ever do? How can you lose, again I ask, how can you lose something when the contribution is nil? If the contribution is nil, how can you lose it? Who can bring any charge against God's elect, the one that God has chosen regardless of his merits or demerits? Regardless of whether he's good or whether he's bad. How good you are doesn't impress God. How bad you are doesn't put him off. He's not bothered. He's choosing you. He, he, he wants you. Not, not, your, not your, your life or your character and all these things. He wants you. God's elect. Who, who is this person that's going to say, oh, well, I'm gonna, no, I'm going to condemn him. He sins. God will say, yeah, I know. I chose him anyway. I mean, what do you think God says when you do the worst thing that you ever do? I mean, one day... You're going to do the worst thing you ever did in your life. Maybe you've done it already. Maybe you haven't done it yet. What do you think God's going to do when you do the worst thing that you ever do in your life? Is he going to say, you know, I'm surprised with you. If I'd known that, I wouldn't have chosen you in the first place. Is he somehow going to be sort of a put off? But is he going to say, well, no, I didn't know you could do that. I wouldn't have chosen you if I'd known that. No, no, you laugh at it. That's what you should do. You should laugh at it. It's ridiculous. He's going to say, no, I knew you were like that. I knew that even before you were born. I decided to have you anyway. I wasn't choosing you because of how good you are. I'm just choosing you because I want you. And you'll say to the Lord, well, why do you choose me? He'll say to you, I'm not telling you. I'll tell you when you get to heaven. For my reasons. Not for your reasons, for my reasons. He's not choosing you for anything in you. He's choosing you for his own reasons. And he won't tell you what they are. But God's elect. And you, you may say, well, how do I know that I'm God's elect? Well, I can tell you, the very second you come to Jesus, you know what you're one of God's elect. 
That's, how, that's, that's why you came to Jesus. You came to Jesus because God was working in you. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. If he's got his mind on you, he will bring you to Jesus. You've been brought to Jesus. You are God's elect. You can know God had his mind upon you before the foundation of the world. Determined to make you like Jesus. And if he's determined to make you like Jesus, then there's some hope of it happening. God's elect. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is Christ who died. Do, do you think it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. Do you think there's some sin for which Jesus didn't die? Say, what, if I, what if I sin? Yeah, but Jesus has died. He's died for every sin of the human race. There's only one sin that's unforgivable, and that's refusing to have Jesus. And the only reason why it's unforgivable is because having Jesus is the way of forgiveness. If you won't have the way of forgiveness, it's unforgivable. But, but apart from that, all, all manner of sins and wickedness shall be forgiven the, sin, the, the sons of men, says, said Jesus. There's absolutely nothing. Think of people in the Bible that were forgiven. Peter cursing and swearing. Paul murdered Christians. Manasseh who sacrificed his own son and brought Israel into such idolatry. All, all manner of sins and wickedness shall be forgiven the sons of men. It is Christ who's died. He died for your sins. There's no sin you're ever going to commit which is beyond the power of the blood of Jesus. You're going to be condemned. How's how's he going to get around the fact that Jesus died for those sins? It's Christ who died. There's no sin you're ever going to commit for which Jesus is powerless to forgive them because of his blood. He's already paid the price for it. Even before you commit the sin, it's already been atoned for. You better not exploit that. Say, well, in case I can sin. Oh no, you, you might suffer a lot. God might deal with you. But the price has been paid. The, the way of forgiveness has been found, it is Christ who died. But he didn't only die, more than that, he's been raised from the dead. And the very reason why Jesus was raised from the dead was to show that the sacrifice for Jesus, for your sins, has been accepted. The, the Father's raised him to show, yeah, I've accepted the sacrifice, now, now I'll put him back to life again. Back in the Old Testament, the great high priest who walked into the Holy of Holies presenting the blood upon the altar for the sacrifice of sins. He wore a big, long gown. And around the bottom of the gown, there were dried pomegranates that, that rattled. And there were little golden bells that went dingle, 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 dingle as he was walking along. And the reason why they were there is because when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood of sacrifice, you weren't sure whether he wouldn't be killed in the presence of God. No one can walk into the presence of God and stay alive except by the blood of sacrifice, so he could go, because he was carrying the blood of sacrifice. And the great thing is, the great question was, would the father accept the sacrifice? And the test was whether he would be alive. And there's an old Jewish tradition, not in the Bible, but it's in Jewish tradition, that they tied a rope around his ankle, that if he died, they could pull him back out without going inside. An old Jewish tradition to to that effect. But you see, as he was walking around, sprinkling the blood, giving the blood to God, they were outside listening. They were listening for the, the rattle, rattle, rattle. They were listening for the, the jingle, jingle, jingle of the golden bells. And they would say, he's alive, he's alive. God has accepted the sacrifice for another year. The Day of Atonement's working for another year. God has accepted the sacrifice. He's alive, he's alive. We've got redemption again for another year. And Jesus is the same position. He's alive. Can you not hear the golden bells? We've got, we've got redemption, not for another year, but forever. Jesus is alive. The sacrifice has been accepted. He's there, presenting his blood in the heavenly, in the heavenly glory. 
Not, he's not only died, yes, he's also been raised and he's presenting the blood to the Father for, for your sins. How could you possibly be condemned? It's Christ who died. More than that, he's alive. And even more than that, he's at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us. He's praying, he's saying to the Father, Father, I will that they get to be with me. How, how can anything possibly overthrow the, the ministry of Jesus bringing us to glory? He's bringing many sons to glory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Oh, well, you say, yeah, okay, but... It's always about, isn't it? You've always got some other argument to bring in. You always sort of keep on persisting, arguing against yourself. Oh yeah, maybe so, but what if there's some persecution? What if the whole of Britain becomes a Muslim country and then they set up Sharia law? That could happen in a few years' time, where we're going. I mean, what if, what if we start getting persecuted? Every, every Christian pastor I know in Eritrea is in prison. I don't know any pastor in Eritrea not in prison. What if some terrible persecution, people laying down their lives, being killed for the sake of Jesus? Surely, I don't think I can stand up against that. Surely, I'll, I'll surrender my faith in such a day. I'll give. I won't stand amidst persecution and suffering. Surely, in that in that day, I don't think I can keep going. Oh, listen to Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, and old nation is starving? or nakedness, and I've got no clothes, or danger, or sword, as it is written in the book of Psalms, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What if some terrible persecution comes my way? Will I really survive in that day? Won't won't I fall? Won't won't that separate me from, from the love of Christ? No, says Paul. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. He doesn't even say in all these things we are conquerors. He says in all these things we are more than conquerors. Not only do we conquer, we conquer with ease. Not only do we conquer, we we super conquer, we hyper conquer. We're we're more than than any conqueror. We conquer with ease. Why? Because God's put his hand upon us. For all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Not more than conquerors because of how good we are. Not more than conquerors because we, we really will try and persevere and do our best amidst persecution. Not more than conquerors because no matter what comes our way, we'll sort of do our best and hopefully we might come through. No, no, more than conquerors through him who loved us. He has set his love on us. And no matter what, success or failure, persecution or ease, whatever it is, he has no plans to abandon his love. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so by now, Paul hopes that you're convinced. He's, that's, he's finished now. He's got, if, you, if, if you're still not convinced, he's giving up on you. <laughs> For I am persuaded, he says that. Nobody else is persuaded, he says, Paul, I am. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, that's everything, isn't it? Every problem you're ever going to have is either because you're alive or because you're going to be dead. Death nor life is everything there ever is. Neither death nor life, nor angels, angels, the most powerful things in heaven, nor rulers, the most powerful things on earth, nor things present, things that are here, nor things to come. That's everything, isn't it? Every problem you ever have is either here or it's coming. Neither things present nor things to come. It's everything. Nor powers, nor heights, anything up in the, in the heavenly, heavenly realm, nor depths, anything from, from hell beneath. That's everything. Everything there is, either up or down or somewhere in between, neither height nor depth. Paul is finding every possible way he can find of saying everything. He's finding half a dozen different ways of saying it. Neither up nor down, or coming or present, or here or there, angels or rulers. He's finding every conceivable way of saying nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
He's finding every possible expression he can find to, to persuade us that there's nothing, there's no, nothing in the entire realm of the cosmos which is able to separate us from the plan of God. Nor anything else in all creation. Again, that's another way of saying everything. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're not convinced, well, I'll give up on you. I mean, why, why should anybody not be convinced? He's saying this grace of God is all-powerful. He was saved by grace from A to Z, every step of the way. It was God's mercy and determination to have you and get you to be like Jesus. Even if you don't cooperate, he'll still, he'll still work in you. Even if you sin, he'll deal with your sins. Nothing can stop him. No persecution, no suffering, no mistake. Nothing can stop, it, stop him bringing you to glory. What do you say? What about the verses on the other side? Well, all I can say about that is go and look at these verses on the other side. They're never, they're never undoing anything here. They're always about uh, inheritance or reward. I suppose the, the greatest ones are in the, the letters of the Hebrews. Every time anybody ever discusses this subject, there's always someone who says, oh, what about Hebrews 6? If we fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. To which I answer, read it. Never read it properly. Go read it again. If a person is enlightened and this and this and this and they fall away, it's impossible to, for the, to, to renew them to repentance. And then Paul says this. He says, Hebrews says this. He says, though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we are speaking of better things, things that accompany salvation. Because, now listen to this. Listen to it carefully and think, it's, think through its implications. Because God is not so unjust. You'll you, you lose something. You'll lose it forever. It's all right because... Uh, I can see you're still working for God. You still love his people. And uh, you do a lot for his sake, serving the saints. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his sake. And we desire you to press on and by faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, is the writer saying God is, so, is not so unjust as, not, as to look at your works and see how much you're working for him and as a result of your works he gives you salvation. Is there anybody here who believes that? That, that, that God is not so unjust as to give you salvation because of your works? Is that, is that the theme of Hebrews chapter 6? And, and he says, by, no, press on and by faith and patience inherit the promises. Not by faith and patience get saved. Not by faith and patience be justified. Not by faith and patience be born again. Not by faith and patience. You don't need patience to be born again. He's not talking about salvation. You don't need patience to be, to be saved. You, you, don't get, you don't get salvation by being rewarded for your good work. That's not, that's not dealing with salvation at all. And I said to you just now, and I say it again, the, re, the warnings of Scripture are, are never about this basic salvation. They are about rewards. They're about inheriting promises and getting God to bless you. Can you lose your salvation? No. Can you lose something God wants to give you? Yes. And our writer, Hebrews, has already given the illustration of the Israelites in the wilderness. They got saved by the blood of the Lamb. And God is going to try to be, God is seeking to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. But there's a long way between being saved by the blood of the Lamb and getting to a land flowing with milk and honey. And somewhere in the middle, they, they, they sin and they rebel. And God said, these ten times you've rebelled against me, I'm not going to bring you into Canaan after all. You've lost it. You've lost what? Are they taken back to Egypt? 
Is the blood cancelled out? Are they, do they go back to slavery under Pharaoh again? Are they de-redeemed? Are, are they no longer Israel? Is the salvation at the national level, does it get undone and they get put back to where they were before? Is that what happens? No. What they lose is not what they've got, but where God wants to bring them. Yeah, you can lose that. You can lose where God wants to bring you. You cannot inherit the promises. Not promises of salvation, you've got those already. The promises of God's using you, the promise of inheriting the kingdom, promises of being enabled to achieve something for God in this life. Those are what the warnings are about. They're not warnings about salvation, they're warnings about reward. Or think of Hebrews chapter 10. If, you, if we sin willfully after we've come to a knowledge of the truth, there's nothing left except a fiery expectation of judgment. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. A fiery expectation of judgment if we sin willfully. But what happens if we sin willfully and, and there's an expectation of fiery judgment? Well, he says, but don't do that. But don't, don't, do, don't do such a foolish thing as that, as stumbling and falling into un- unbelief. Hold on, hold on to your confidence. Hold on to your confidence. It will be... It will be what? Hold on to your confidence and you'll be born again. And you're born again already. Hold on to your confidence and you'll get to heaven. They're as good as in heaven already. Hold on to your confidence and you'll get justification. You won't lose your justification. There's no chance of that. The Hebrews has already said, you're sanctified forever by the body of Christ. He's already said that. Eternal redemption. Not loaned redemption or one-year redemption or borrowed redemption. Eternal redemption. He's already said that. Hold on to your faith. It shall be richly rewarded. The theme is still about reward. These warnings of Scripture are not about justification or regeneration or sonship or any of these things that come to us in our first salvation. They are about what we are saved for. We're saved for inheriting the promises. We're saved for doing something for God. Hebrews chapter 11 gives all the heroes of faith. Moses did this. Aaron did that. Moses' parents did this. Abel founded the the sacrificial system. Enoch proved that God could defeat death. Joshua destroyed the city by blowing trumpets, walking around the city. All these things people did. In no case is, is the writer telling us how they got saved. In each case, he's telling us how they achieved something for God. How by faith and works of faith, they inherited the promises. These warnings of Hebrews and any other warnings in Scripture, none of them are about losing salvation. Or Esau, who, according to Hebrews chapter 12, wept because he didn't get the inheritance. Notice the inheritance. And he wept for it and couldn't find a place for repentance, even though he wept for it with tears. But go and read the story. Go back to Genesis and read the story. He was meant to inherit the family leadership, but Jacob got it instead. And then he comes to his father. His father says, Father, give me the inheritance. And the father, Isaac, says, no, I've already given it to Jacob. And Esau wants it, and he weeps in distress. He has blown his inheritance. He's ruined his inheritance. But read the story. He's still a member of the family. He's not put out of the family. And actually, the last thing you ever hear of Esau, he's throwing his arms around Jacob and they are kissing each other. And Jacob, who's scared of him because last time he said, I'm going to kill you, he finds, he finds he's reconciled. He finds he, he wants blessing. And, the, and they continue as brothers. They love each other. Esau never is put out of the family in any way whatsoever. But he has lost his inheritance. That's what can happen to you. You can't be put out of the family in any way whatsoever. But you could lose, if you get an evil heart of unbelief, you could not achieve 
what God wants to do through you and to you and in you. You could not lay hold of the promises God wants. These warnings are, not, are never warnings about basic salvation. And although I've not got time to look at all of them, I'm only mentioning them to say, they do not threaten Romans 8. They do not threaten John's Gospel. They don't threaten the covenants, promises of Jeremiah, all those assurances, they stand. The warnings of Scripture have nothing to do with them. They're on wholly different subjects altogether. No, no, these assurances, they're there. They mean what they say. Once saved, always saved. But, but, but interpret that in the right way. I didn't say once a church member, always saved. I didn't say once walked forward at an evangelistic crusade and put your hand up at a meeting, always saved. I didn't say once the churchgoer, always saved. I didn't say once signed a decision card, always saved. I said once saved, once regenerated, once indwelt by the Spirit, once transferred to the kingdom, once born again by the power of God's Spirit. Once God lays hold of you, he will keep you forever. It's not once been some been kind of son of Judas joining a band of disciples and flowing along with them from a moment until you betray Jesus. No, no. Once saved, once regenerate, once born again, once indwelt by the Spirit, always kept by the Spirit. That's the teaching. It's not, it's not some easy, superficial thing that you, you just join the church and you're saved forever. It's not that when you're born again by the powerful work of the Spirit. You see, the new birth is a powerful thing. People think of just signing some card or walking forward at a meeting. Well, maybe God can save anybody by those ways. But uh, the new birth that I'm talking about is something powerful. It's being given a new nature. It's being taken out of the kingdom of God and put into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It's grace reigning over you and sin not reigning over you. That's, that's the promise. That's the thing that's going to be, we're told, is going to last forever. Once saved, once born again. Don't, don't be put off by the warnings. Go and look at those warnings. Even when you're saved, you still have to inherit the promises. You still have to uh, achieve something for God. And this is the amazing thing about the New Testament, that it is encouraging but motivating at the same time. It is encouraging. It says, I'm, I'm saving you. I'm never going to leave you. I'll never forsake you. But it doesn't say, well, you're saved now, so you, can, you just sit in heaven, you sit on your seat and listening to nice sermons until Jesus comes or until you go to heaven. You're not passive for the rest of your life. No, you're saved for something. You're, you're delivered by the blood of the Lamb in order to get to a land flowing with milk and honey. Nothing, nothing about God's word to you is threatening to take salvation back. It's not threatening in that way. You're not threatened with a kind of, if you do that, I'll take, I'll take what I've given you away. No, God doesn't threaten you in that way. Nothing that threatens you like that. And yet, on the other hand, it's not, well, you're saved now, so thank God for you to do. Finish. You just wait for heaven now. It's not that either. It's you're saved now. Go after what you were saved for. Go after your inheritance. Abel, I want you to pioneer the sacrificial system. Enoch, I'm telling you, you're not going to die. You believe me, you'll skip your funeral. Uh, Abraham, you're going to found a new nation, which might, the seed is going to be Jesus. He'll save the world and everybody's going to be blessed to him. Uh, Moses, well, you're going to bring the law. Moses' parents, you're, you're going to save your child. You're going to keep your child alive. And Pharaoh is saying, throw him into the river. I'll, I'll give you what to do. Pharaoh says, put him in the river. Well, put him in the river. Pharaoh didn't say, you can't lose a basket. They obey Pharaoh. The Pharaohs push a baby in the river, they put him in the river. In a basket. Just following the leading of God. 
God floats that basket down the river until the basket with baby Moses lands at the feet of Pharaoh's daughter. Moses gets a free education at the palace paid for by Pharaoh. Because Moses' parents were moving in faith. God showed them what to do and they did it. And their son got the perfect education to be a lawgiver and a military man and a a writer of the entire first five books of Moses, all, all, all trained by Pharaoh. The only educated man, really, in the whole of Israel. But Pharaoh gave him the education. And when you follow God's will for your life, he will work out things which are inconceivable, things more than you ever asked or thought of. He'll do wonders for you. Samson, David, Jephthah, even stupid people. Is there anyone more stupid in the Bible than Jephthah? You know the story of Jephthah? He takes a vow. The first, the first thing that ever comes along to give me the victory, the first thing that ever comes, the first living thing I see, I'll sacrifice it. That was a stupid vow. And it was even more stupid to keep it. If you ever make a vow like that, don't keep it, repent of it. <laughs> you, 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 you vow to God something you should never vow. You, you make some stupid promise to God. Don't keep it, repent of it. You can't say, Lord, I'm so sorry. You're just happy to release me. You repent. You don't keep a vow like that. But you see, even though he was a bit of an idiot sometimes, Jephthah did go on trusting God. He did achieve his life's goal. Samson, I mean, he mixed business and pleasure all the time. You know, his, his job was to conquer the whole of Philistines without involving the armies of Israel because they didn't have any, any iron. The Philistines had iron. They got into a big, a big national war, Israel would be slaughtered. God said, no, I want to do it on your own. I'm going to give you amazing strength. You're going to conquer the Philistines all on your own. They would go and fraternize with the Philistines. A bit too much, in my opinion. But uh, find, find their nice ladies and uh, chat them up and trying to get himself in a position to conquer the Philistines. And he did some silly things. Finally, he's, he's captured. He cuts his hair off. And uh, He's lost everything, he's, he's been unwise, and he's about to be killed. He's there, tied between two pillars. But you know, the story's never over until it's over. Your life is never finished until it's finished. You haven't blown it until God says you've blown it. And God didn't say to, to, to Samson, I'm finished with you. God never said anything like that. You don't stop believing until you really know God's, the answer is, is finished. But while... There is life, there is hope. People ought always to to pray and not to faint, not to give up. And Samson, even when he's ruined his life and he's about to die and he's made a hopeless mess of his entire life, he still believes that God could give him the victory. And he still says, oh Lord, give me one more chance. Just give me one more chance. Let me, let me, let me pull this building down upon these Philistines. And the Lord gives him the strength back again, which he lost. He's not lost it forever. God gives it back to him, and his strength comes back, and he pulls upon these columns, and the old building collapses, and he destroys the Philistines all in one go, and fulfills his life's destiny in the last seconds of his life. And he gets into Hebrews 11. By faith, Samson. You think Samson would never get there, but he did. By faith, Samson. You see, you can almost ruin your life. You, you can do something so stupid, you think, well, I've blown it forever. No, no, go on believing. When you fall down, get up. When you wander, come back. When you do something wrong, all right, let God overrule it. Go on believing. The story's not over until it's over. Go on believing. You'll never 
lose, not only will you not lose your salvation, you won't even lose your ministry. If you don't, there's an evil heart of unbelief coming, even your ministry you will achieve, no matter how weak you are. That's the point of Hebrews. He's touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. We've got so many weaknesses. We do things which we hope nobody else will ever find out about. God knows anyway. And he's not rejecting you because of that weakness. He feels for you in the weakness. He's touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. And actually, Jesus had weaknesses. He became a man. He became encompassed around by weakness. He could be fall asleep. He could be tired. He could be depressed. He could ask questions. He could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't even know why I'm, I'm hanging on this cross. There were things upon the cross that even Jesus did not understand. And even he did not fully understand the will of God. And he's asking, why, why have you forsaken me? Even he's in spiritual trouble. He goes through every weakness, including spiritual weaknesses. Every conceivable weakness you'll ever have, you'll find something similar in the life of Jesus. He never sins. He's like us at all point, points, but not sin. He didn't sin. He doesn't sympathize with your sins. But he does know where you're coming from. He doesn't sympathize with the sin, but he does know what leads to it. He, he does know all about you, where you're coming from, what you're like, what your body's like, what your parents are like, what, what your, your background is like what your, your culture's like. He knows all about it. He knows every single thing about it. And he feels for you. He's touched with the feeling of our weaknesses, says, says one translation. The only thing that's needed is you go on believing. When things are slow in coming, you go on believing. When there's opposition, you go on believing. When you fail, you get up again and you go on believing. When you're weak, you still believe that God can use you. You go on and on. You hold to your first confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now you say, well, what about the other side? I know these verses are so, so be secure. What about the other side? I answer, the other side are not by salva- about salvation. They're about laying hold of God's will for your life. Inheriting the kingdom, having Jesus say, well done. Being glad when Jesus comes. If you sin, you won't be glad when Jesus comes. Being glad when Jesus comes laying hold of that for which God laid hold of you. Remember Philippians 3, Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which God took hold of me. I've not got there yet. I want to evangelize all the, all the regions of Europe. I want to lay hold of all, of, of all the big cities for, for Christ. I've not done it yet, but I want to lay hold of that for which God laid hold of me. God took hold of you that you might take hold of something for him. You are secure. You don't have to be worrying about losing your salvation. Don't, don't be going after salvation, trying to save yourself. You're saved already. Go after your inheritance. Go after your ministry. Go after the thing that God's put upon your life. You could lose that, but don't let it happen. Don't let an evil heart of unbelief arise, causing you to lose contact with God as the living God. He's the living God. He's there for you. He'll work in your situation. Don't lose touch with him because of your stubbornness and your rebellion. Don't let God say, well, these ten times you've rebelled against me, so so I'm not going to give you what I would have given you. Don't let God say to you what he said to Saul, I've rejected you from being king. God didn't say to Saul, I've rejected you. He said, I've rejected you from being king. He didn't lose his salvation. He lost his ministry. So there are warnings about that. Those are the other side of the coin, so to speak. But they're not affecting your everlasting security. It is Christ who died. It's Christ who's alive for you. It's Christ who's interceding you at the right hand of the Father. It is God who's chosen you. There's no way in which anything can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Don't even worry about it. Put your faith in Jesus. Know you are secure forever. 
Don't be trying to save yourself or trying to prove that you're saved or how good you are. Forget it. Put your faith in Jesus and know you're saved and go after what you are saved for. Don't let an evil heart of unbelief hear God's voice today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. and Get to the land flowing with milk and honey. Don't get stuck somewhere. Don't go, you're never going to go back to Egypt, but don't, don't get stuck in the wilderness. Go on and on and on until you achieve something for God and you reach the land flowing with milk and honey, which is not heaven. You're in, in heaven already. The land flowing with milk and honey is the position where you've achieved something for God and you rest in the blessing of what the Lord is, has done for you and is doing for you. You enter into rest. You enjoy the land that's flowing with milk and honey. There are warnings about that. But your salvation is secure. Know it and believe it. So, so say, as Paul said, I am persuaded. I'm convinced. You, you, you see, there's, there's, a, there's an argument there. You've got to follow the argument. You can see why it is that you cannot fall from God's kingdom of grace and say, I am persuaded. Nothing can separate me. You get up and move on with God. If you've wandered, come back. If you've sinned, repent and get forgiven and restored. It's, the, the blood of Christ is there for you. If any person sinned, we have an advocate with the Father. He's the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is still there for you. Come back and get up and move on. Inherit the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's stand and pray together tonight. Father, I pray that you will convince us of how secure we are by your Spirit, not just by the words of a man, not even by the Bible, but by your Holy Spirit. Persuade us, can convince us, bring us to the point where we can say, I am persuaded that nothing can separate me from the love of God which is in Christ. And then, Lord, I pray that in each person's life here, you'll put before us our calling, what it is that we're meant to be doing for you. Lay, put before us the race that is set before us and help us to run the race looking under Jesus till we achieve something for him. And he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to live in such a way, secure but motivated. Not struggling to be saved, but seeking to lay hold of what you want to do through us and in us in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much.